0: Romans chapter 4. Chapter 4, and we're going to read the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 1 What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man under whom God imputeth righteousness without works, Same Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, Come with this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps that are faith of thy of father Abraham, which he had been yet uncircumcised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this night for... Uh, yet again the privilege of being able to join together in this place we thank you father for how great thou art we thank you for the salvation that is ours in christ jesus and lord now as we come again to the book of romans and we consider the wonder of our salvation the glory of the uh, justification that is ours through christ jesus we pray that father you bless our time together give us wisdom to understand your word Give me wisdom, Father God, to present your word. And may you receive all the praise and all the glory as we consider facts that I'm sure we know well. But may they be a blessing and a refreshing to our hearts as we consider your word together. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the Jews of Paul's day, and indeed the Jews of today, just like those Jews of Paul's day, found it hard to believe the simplicity of the gospel. The fact that all men can be saved simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Apostle Paul understood this and realized the best way to explain how you and I were saved, how, to, how we obtain the righteousness that's required for our justification, was to use an example of someone who they cherished a great deal and revealed that they were saved by faith and faith alone. So Paul took the father of the Israeli, Israeli nation, Abraham, for he was saved by faith and faith alone. And if he could prove that to them, if he could prove to them that he was saved by faith and faith alone, then they would have no argument. For if it was good for Abraham, then it should be good enough for them. And to illustrate this point, in verse 1 of this chapter, the apostle asks, what has Abraham found? Or what did Abraham get by human activity? What did Abraham get by works of the flesh? The Jew, we said last week, held that Abraham received at least three things, righteousness, an inheritance, and a posterity. Now these three things are true, Abraham did obtain righteousness Abraham did obtain inheritance Abraham did obtain posterity he was indeed the father of the nation of Israel and of many nations but the question is not did he obtain these three things but how did Abraham obtain these three things we said last week that Paul's discussion to answer the question forms the outline of chapter 4 Last week we saw the introduction in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, he deals with Abraham's righteousness in verses 3 through 12, which is what we're going to deal with tonight. Thirdly, he deals with Abraham's inheritance in chapter 4, verses 13 and 16. He deals with Abraham's posterity in Romans 4, 17 and 21. And he closes with an application for you and I in Romans 4, 23 to 25. But tonight, what we want to do is we want to consider the second point of this outline... We want to consider how did Abraham obtain righteousness from verses three to 12. And here we know that Abraham obtained righteousness apart from the deed, firstly, apart from the deeds of the flesh. in verses three through eight. In verse three we read, "For what saith the scripture? So Paul is going to take us back to the Old Testament and explain from the Old Testament how Abraham was saved. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's interesting to note here that the, 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 the writer of Romans doesn't say Abraham was made righteous in all things. But that God accounted Abraham as righteous. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. Now in Romans chapter 4, there are three key words that uh, are used, uh, translated three different ways, but essentially they mean the same thing because they all come from the same Greek word or from the same Greek root word of the Greek, uh, just in different kinds of speech. But this is the same Greek word essentially. It means exactly the same thing. And in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, we read the word counted unto him for righteousness. In verse 5 we read this, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, His faith is counted for righteousness. That's the first word, counted. Look down in verse 9. Come with this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision, for we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. The word "reckoned" there is the same Greek word as the Greek word used for counted. And then in verse 22 we read, And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Same Greek word, translated a different way. And the reason why it's translated differently is effectively because it's different parts of speech. But the word's the same. It means the same. Uh, in fact, that word is uh, no different. One is just talking about the thing that happened to Abraham in the past. The other is talking about what's happening to you and I in the present. Okay? And I'm not going to go on all Greek for you tonight because you don't really want a Greek lesson. But just uh, understand that these three words have essentially the same meaning. And they're from the same Greek word. And they simply mean to put to the credit of or to put to one's account. So when it says in verse 3, Abraham believed God and was counted for righteousness, it says God put to Abraham's account righteousness. Because he believed God, God credited Abraham's account with righteousness. In other words, Abraham obtained his righteousness because God put it to his account by faith, not by the deeds of of the flesh. Nothing that Abraham did, no matter how great Abraham was, and he was a great man, nothing that Abraham did brought about his righteousness. It was his simple faith in God that brought about his righteousness. God credited to Abraham's account righteousness because Abraham believed God. And what happens for you and I is the same. God credits us with righteousness, he credits us as a righteous standing before him as a result of our faith in Christ. Nothing that you and I do benefits us for righteousness' sake, as far as salvation goes. You and I were saved by faith, and by that faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work upon Calvary, as we believed in him, God credited to our account his righteousness. To illustrate this, you know, suppose someone deposits a sum of money to your bank account. It's purely a gift. It's not a salary, it's not a remuneration in any way, it's not for payment for anything of any kind. And at first, as you pick up your bank statement, you look at this money that's being put into your account, you may have difficulty comprehending the fact of how come you've got this extra money that you didn't put in, your boss didn't put in, how does this money appear in your account? But as you investigate, you find uh, that uh, it was somebody you knew and you become convinced that the money was genuine. It wasn't some bank glitch, you know. You went to the ATM and you put your card in and lo and behold, uh, your card said you had one million and fifty dollars okay? The $50 you had yesterday, the million you have today, you know, somebody had added a million. Well, you actually figure out that that million dollars that's in your account was actually legitimate. Somebody loved you that much. That wouldn't be any of us. I don't think we know anybody who has a million dollars to even give to us, let alone lend it to us. But anyway, you look in the account and it's legitimate. It's, it's, uh, it's something that's genuine. And the person who deposited it is reliable. You know, the check's not going to bounce. And he's actually done this for you. Well, that's what God did for us. That's salvation. When you and I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Abraham, God deposited. God imputed, God reckoned to our account righteousness. He placed to our account his righteousness. Our justification is God imputing to us Christ's righteousness. God does not make us righteous. He simply imputes to our account righteousness. And by counting us perfectly righteous, as he did with Abraham... In verse three, four, what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted for righteousness. So as God counts us righteous, because He's added to our account the righteousness of Christ. After we are counted righteous, then God begins to make us truly righteous. Justification is as being saved by Him imputing to our account the righteousness of Christ. Then you and I are God works in us to make us righteous. That's sanctification. And one day you and I will stand in righteousness. That's glorification. When a sinner repents and believes in Christ, God takes that sinner's moral spiritual account and makes an entry in that account. It's like you have a bank account, you know, and you've got some serious issues with regard to you need some bills to pay and you've got no money, Okay. And God writes on that account, he writes, fully righteous. You know, it's like if somebody went to the filing cabinet of the records uh, in in heaven and uh, looked up your file and pulled out the file of Nigel Davies and he opened up the file, what he would find inside it is nothing except for a statement that says, declared righteous. All the sins are gone. There is no record of my unrighteousness. My account is clear because God imputed to me by faith the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that becomes a glorious truth, that you and I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone. Now Romans 4.4 goes on to explain this a little bit further for us. He says this, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. See, all the works that you and I could do for salvation are not securing our salvation. They're simply adding to the debt. The phrase not reckoned of grace but of debt simply means this, that works is a system based upon debt and obligation. Somebody must pay us for the work we do. So if you and I are working towards heaven, then somebody has to pay us for that work. And so a system of works seeks to put God in debt to us. To have God owe us his favor because of our good behavior. That's what work salvation is. You and I are working our way to heaven and we are making God the debtor And we're expecting God to pay us for our works. But you and I must remember, according to Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So even the very best that you and I can do are smelly, filthy rags in the nostrils of Almighty God. And yet we want to take those filthy rags and we want God to pay us doing those acts that's what works salvation is we're making God the debtor we're making God owe us something the truth is the old account was getting larger every day and the more that you and I do to secure salvation the more we need salvation So Romans 4.5 then comes in as the flip of this. And this is one of the glorious verses of inspired scripture, verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. This states the whole principle of Romans chapter 4 in one sentence. The reality is God wants to justify the ungodly. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. God wants to justify the ungodly. But righteousness can never be put to the account of the person who approaches God on the principle of works, but to him that worketh not. But believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Righteousness can never be ours, by works. God wants to justify the ungodly, but he can't justify the ungodly by their ungodly works. It has to be by faith. It's given to you and I, given to the one who believes, by faith. He justifies the ungodly because we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now The word ungodly here in verse... Uh, 5 is, in this verse is startling in some ways because you know to declare a good person a moral person righteous might seem understandable but God says he justifies the ungodly which is an amazing fact you know God commends his love towards us in that while we're yet sinners Christ died for us he justifies the ungodly only through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is such a thing possible apart from Christ dying on the cross of Calvary apart from the perfect son of God becoming sin for you and I bearing our iniquities in his body upon the cross of (coughs) Calvary excuse me (coughs) apart from him doing that you and I could not be justified And therefore, it's faith in his finished work of Calvary that saves us. That's why we have nothing to glory in, save the cross of Christ. You know, it isn't as if God is happy with ungo- our ungodly condition. We're not justified because of our ungodliness, but we're justified despite of our ungodliness but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. This is not God saving us because we're ungodly. This is God saving us despite the fact we're ungodly. God doesn't say, look, upon our ungodliness has been some credit to our name. It's the fact that God loves us, that he died for us. As we move on in this chapter, in verses 6 through 8, The apostle takes us to David and he uses David to illustrate this fact to us. He says this in verse 6, he says, Even as David also described the blessings of the man under whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David reinforces the truth that we're justified by faith, not by works. David tells us that there is a great blessing and great happiness for those to whom God imputes righteousness without works. is so what he says in verse 6. "Blessedness!" He describes the blessing of the man under whom God imputes righteousness without works. It really is a joyful thing to know that God justifies you and I without works. Could you imagine what, what, what stress it must put upon those who actually believe they're working their way to heaven, how hard that must be every day of their life to have to make sure they maintain good works to get to glory. When I mean, I'm about you, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, I find it hard enough with His help to live godly every day of my life. I mean, I I struggle with unrighteousness. I I struggle with this old flesh. I I battle it every day of my life, and I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. How in the world do you maintain good works for glory without the Holy Spirit? I can't imagine living my life by a works-based salvation. That would be tough. But the blessedness, according to David, is to those who God imputes righteous without works. To know that God has forgiven us, that God has declared us righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of Christ and Calvary, brings great joy. He goes on in verse 7 he says, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. It ought to put a smile on our face every time we think of our salvation. It ought to put a spring in our step and a joy in our heart to know that you and I are saved by grace, that we're blessed because our iniquities are forgiven and our sins are covered by faith. And the joy is increased. In knowing, not only do we stand in imputed righteousness, but according to verse 8, we have a joy of knowing that once saved, God does not impute sin to us. Look at verse 8, because if you weren't smiling already, you ought to be after verse 8, because it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. (laughs) That's the flip side of this you and i were sinners wretched sinners lost and dying on our way to hell and you and i were indeed dead and trespassing sins but then the lord revealed to us our condition and revealed to us the savior and by faith we placed our faith and trust in him and god wiped the slate clean and he wrote across our account justified and then he says and i'll never again impute sin to your account You know, you can look five years after your salvation, go to that filing cabinet, pull out your file and open it up, and guess what it says? Justified. Twenty years later, you can pull out your file and know what it says. Justified. And yet you and I know that for that last twenty years, there are days, there are weeks, whereby you have not lived a righteous life, and you've sinned against God. But God said, I will not impute to you again your sin. That is a glorious truth. Now, Paul's going to explain that's not a license to sin. Okay? When we get to the second half of the book of Romans, he's are going to explain to us that's not a license to sin. But it's a reality of doctrinal fact that you and I were declared righteous salvation and from that moment on, our sin is not imputed to our account. And when you and I stand before the beamer of seat of Christ, we're not going to be judged for our sin. We're going to be judged for our works. And I don't know about you, beloved. I thank God for that. That he wiped my my slate clean at salvation. He buried my sins in the deepest sea. He cast them as far as the east to the west. And God says, I remember them no more. And he does not impute them to my account again. No wonder David said we ought to be smiling. (laughs) Blessedness. They ought to be rejoicing Because our sins are forgiven, we no longer be judged for our sin, for that was taken care of at Calvary. And not imputing iniquity is the other side of imputing righteousness. We, like Abraham and like David, have a spiritual standing before God apart from works because of the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And for that, we're truly blessed. And in that, we can rejoice. Secondly, Abraham obtained righteousness not only not by the works of the flesh, but Abraham obtained righteousness apart from ordinances, apart from ordinances. Verse 9. Come in this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Now, right here in verse 9, we have introduced to us a new aspect of the argument. Remember, he's arguing with the Jews. He's trying to demonstrate to the Jews that Abraham was justified by faith and faith alone. And if he can convince them of that, then truly they ought to believe in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation because if it was good enough for Abraham, it ought to be good enough for them. And here he addresses another attitude of the Jew. You see, the Jew would say this. There was a righteousness that Abraham had. And we know that Abraham was circumcised. Therefore, the circumcision helps towards righteousness. I'm not sure how that logic works, but that's what they think. Okay? Circumcision helped Abraham's righteousness. They did not deny deny he was declared righteous. They just said the circumcision aids in that righteousness. That's why remember when uh, you get to the New Testament and you have this debate between the Judaizers about the Gentiles. Do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? This is why. They're hung up on this sign in the flesh that it's part of Abraham's righteousness. He was declared righteous and circumcision aided in that righteousness. They gloried in the right of circumcision. Now we know that Abraham was righteous and we've seen that he obtained that righteousness by faith and that's what he says at the end of verse 9. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. In other words, We've made the case. Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted him for righteousness. That's what we've said. So, did that righteousness then just come upon the circumcision, or the unsacred circumcision? Well, what's the what's the go here? If Abraham was justified by faith, what part does circumcision play in that justification? And Paul meets the issue head on in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Verse 9, he asks the question, is salvation for Jews only? Is it for the circumcision or is it also for the uncircumcision? Then in verse 10, he says, okay, let me ask you a further question. To answer my first question, let me ask you another question. Verse 10, how was it re- then reckoned? Okay, when was Abraham reckoned To be saved, when was Abraham's account credited with righteousness? How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Okay, that's a legitimate question. So let's, let's work this back. When was Abraham circumcised? When was Abraham declared righteous? How was it then reckoned? Do you need circumcision... To be saved. So, to answer that question, he asked the question when was Abraham justified? When was he declared righteous? Now, he answers the question in verse 10. He says, Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. See, we know this. Abraham was 99 years of age when he was circumcised. In Genesis 17 23 to 27, we're not going to take time to read it. You can read it later if you want to. Genesis 17, 23, 27. He was 99 years of age when he was circumcised. 14 years prior to that, in Genesis chapter 15, is when God declared him righteous. So you can see the Jew thinking here, can't you? Okay, Abraham is righteous. Yes, we know that. But circumcision had a part in that. And Abraham says, so Paul says, okay, so let's look at it. When did Abraham get circumcised? When did he get saved? He was circumcised at 99. 14 years prior to that, he was declared righteous. Therefore, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. The conclusion then is that circumcision had nothing to do with his justification. And it has nothing to do with our justification. That's why in Acts 15, the council there in Jerusalem, that's why they did not require Gentiles to be circumcised to be saved because it has nothing to do with salvation. Oh, but now you can see the Jew again, can't you? Okay, fine. It's nothing to do with salvation. So then what is the point of circumcision? Why was it given? I mean, that's a legitimate question, isn't it? Well, that's basically what they ask in verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised, and he might be father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Why was circumcision given? Well, first of all, it was given as a sign. That's what verse 11 says. And he received the sign of circumcision. It was given as evidence to Abraham and to the world because the world knew that the Jews were circumcised. It was given as evidence to Abraham and the world that he belonged to God and that he believed God's promises. It was a sign, received the sign of circumcision, it was an outward sign of what had happened on the inside. It's similar to baptism. You know, baptism doesn't save you and I. When you and I went through the waters of baptism, when you and I were baptized by immersion in water, that did not save us. It was simply an outward sign of what had already taken place in our hearts. You and I were testifying that we had indeed been saved. When we stood in that water and we were buried with him in baptism and rose again to new life, we were saying that in Christ we have been saved. We've been made new. And that baptism was a sign to the world of what had already taken place in our hearts of salvation. Look in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, the grace may obey? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized in his death. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Baptism is simply a picture of what took place at salvation. And just as baptism cannot save us, circumcision cannot save anyone. And we must remember that the observance of any ordinance cannot save. It doesn't matter if it's the Lord's table, uh, whatever it might be, nothing we do can save. And just as baptism doesn't save us, circumcision didn't save the Jew. It was always and always will be believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary that saves. That's what Paul told the Philippian jailer: "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved." And if thou hast believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they too shall be saved. Salvation has always been by faith. It's always been by believing in God and Christ. It's never been by works, and not even by the ordinance. Of circumcision or baptism, they're simply outward signs of what has already taken place on the inside. But also, he says here in Romans chapter four and verse eleven, he says it was a sign. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which had yet being uncircumcised. It was a seal as well. It was given as a seal. It was a reminder to him. That God had given him the gift of salvation, and that gift was secure. Just as circumcision could not be changed, could not be reversed, nor could salvation. It was God's outward seal, God's outward sign, that showed him that his salvation, his justification, was sealed. That's what he says in verse 11 a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had yet. Which he had yet been uncircumcised. He had been justified by faith, he'd been counted for righteousness fourteen years before the sign of circumcision, and now that sign was a seal. It was God saying to him, You are your salvation is secure. It's as unchangeable as this physical sign. You know, today believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit where Abraham's seal of salvation was circumcision. In a very loose way, and I don't want to tie it too closely, but in a very loose way, circumcision was to Abraham what the indwelling Holy Spirit is to us. Ephesians chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, In whom also you trusted after that you heard that the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after he, that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance to the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. After we were saved, after we trusted the gospel and we indeed were saved, after that, after that you believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit promise. You and I receive the indwelling Holy Spirit as proof that our salvation is secure. The sealing of the believer is a finished transaction. And just as surely as circumcision could not be reversed, the indwelling Holy Spirit cannot be reversed. And the indwelling Holy Spirit is the constant evidence within you and I that our salvation is secure. Just as a signature in a letter or a document attests to its authenticity, the presence of the Holy Spirit proves the believer's salvation is genuine. Look in Romans 8 and verse 9. Romans 8 and verse 9. Which are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Then drop down to verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, circumcision did not achieve salvation for Abraham. It merely attested to the authenticity and the genuineness of Abraham's relationship to God. Just as the indwelling Holy Spirit does for us, he closes the section out in Romans chapter 11, verse B and verse 12. He says this, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps that are of faith of our Father Abraham which he had been yet uncircumcised. Basically what he says in these two verses is that Abraham is the father of all that believe. Verse 11 he says, he's the father of them that believe that are not circumcised. That's you and I. Okay, Those of us who are not Jews, who have been saved by faith, He's the father. Abraham was saved prior to his circumcision so that Abraham could be the testimony of justification by faith and faith alone. And those of us who are not circumcised, those of us who are not Jews by birth, are indeed saved that way. And Abraham is our father that way, spiritually. And then in verse 12 he says, And even he's the father of those that are circumcised, but not circumcised only. Notice what he says in verse twelve. He says, The father of circumcision, that's the Jews, to them that are not of the circumcision only, here's the catch, but who also walk in the steps of a of faith, of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet been yet uncircumcised. So the Jew can be saved, the circumcised can be saved, but not by circumcision but by the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what Paul is saying is salvation is for everybody. Jew and Gentile alike, you can be saved by faith. It goes around about in a roundabout way, but you've got to understand he's talking to a Jewish audience right now, trying to convince them that Abraham was simply an example of how to be saved apart from the flesh and apart from the ordinances of men. He was saved by faith. And as he believed God and was saved by faith, so to all that believe by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are related to Abraham, who was the father of all who believe, because we have followed his example and we've been justified by faith. It's been counted to us For righteousness, it's been imputed to our account, it's been reckoned to our account that we are declared righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation was not for those who were circumcised, but for all who believe, just like salvation came to Abraham by faith. You know, Abraham had righteousness, there's no doubt about that, but he obtained his righteousness by faith apart from works. And apart from human ordinances. Likewise, we too are declared righteous apart from works and human ordinances. You and I ought to praise God tonight that salvation is all of God. We ought to praise the Lord for Christ and Calvary, that it made it possible for you and I to be justified by faith and faith alone. That you and I can obtain imputed righteousness. By simple faith. I trust that you have been redeemed by faith in Christ tonight. And if you are redeemed, I trust that you're rejoicing tonight in your Redeemer. Because you ought to be. It's a pretty special place to be, to be redeemed. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Father, for the book of Romans. And for this wonderful demonstration that salvation is not of works of the flesh. It's not obtained through human ordinances. It's obtained by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Father, we pray that you'd help us to rejoice in our Redeemer this night. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to turn in closing to 221.